Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks with me, Claudine Fry, a partner based in our London headquarters. Critical minerals are the focus of our edition today, and I'm joined by Steve Norris, a partner based in our Tokyo office, to discuss the geopolitics of critical minerals and how we anticipate regulation and investment in the industry to evolve. Welcome, Steve. Hi, Claudine. Critical minerals are a hot topic right now, but most people don't realise how truly critical they are until there's a restriction on their use, that is. Critical minerals drive AI, the cloud, the energy transition. They power our phones, keep the lights on, the dishwasher on. The US government defines critical minerals as those which serve an essential function in one or more energy technology and which are at high risk of supply chain disruption efforts to secure access to them are existential. Steve, critical minerals feel ever topical as climate change impacts become more ferocious and the pressure to adapt faster grows. But I know you've actually been working on critical minerals and mining for many, many years, especially in Indonesia and other parts of Asia. So drawing on that perspective and what you're hearing, give us a sense of what makes the issues around critical minerals so significant right now. Right now, for all the buzz on the topic, most parts of the industries around critical minerals, they're, they're not in a great place commercially, commercially at least. You see upstream producers and miners are getting whacked by low prices for their, for their commodities, their minerals. The midstream processors, confused by the de- demand signals, struggling to make money, pick a commercially viable place to build out their refining capacity. And then at the upstream those making batteries, EVs, energy storage systems, they're looking at precarious supply choices, fragile offtake deals due to those pressures further upstream. Wherever you are in the chain, you've just got so much to manage right now. So I can imagine those operating in or investing in critical minerals rather than those of us talking about it and along the supply chains that require them. They must be feeling quite frustrated, constantly hearing they're the future, their industries are critical to survival of our planet, and yet hardly anyone is making any money at the moment. So for making the long-term investment decisions, these capital-intensive ones that every academic paper, government report says are needed and doing it at scale, it requires incredibly strong stomach right now. And yet the long-term critical mineral demand thesis underpinning all of these conversations is still intact. The big uncertainties around it are actually probably not what most companies think they are. Yes, this is cyclically a very stressed phase and a couple more probably this decade would be inevitable but there's clearly going to be a huge market for most of the commodities within the next four to five years and then after that so current price valuations they they favor the big companies that's for sure those who've got the capital to deploy and the corporate stability to make long-term decisions long-term bets really and that's an interesting aspect If we think about critical minerals investment, you know, maybe it's coming from oil and gas majors, sovereign wealth funds, for example, rather than just from mining firms, as you would expect. In the mining sector, the juniors, the the mid caps, the mining firms like that, they don't have the balance sheet strength to ride things out through these cycles. Their projects lose their commercial feasibility. You're seeing banks pull away the funding. And so for them, long term thinking is, you know, it's largely irrelevant at the moment. So, you know, if you're looking at opportunities, you're going to see assets coming offline, going on pause, and those might ultimately end up being developed by someone else in more hospitable economic times. You you come back to the bottom line, though, which is the electrification of everything 
and hence the critical minerals that will enable that. There'll be an essential business trend in the next decade and beyond. And along with related energy transition things like massive renewable energy build out, new fuels, overhauling of food and agriculture, so on. So right now, painful shakeout, but then maybe the quicker, the better, and then transition to the lead up to the next opportunities, if we put it in an optimistic framework. Hmm. And there I was thinking this was going to be largely a good news story, but actually there's clearly a huge amount of complexity and challenge here. And indeed, perhaps some of the the challenge is actually driven itself by the very significance of critical minerals because there is just so much resting on how states manage to exploit the resources they have or secure access to them. So critical minerals are obviously about energy transition, but discussion is almost always about uh, US-China and the geopolitical context in which critical minerals are being extracted, processed, exported and used. And you tend to end up in those discussions thinking about two questions. Can the West produce what it needs and can it do so by itself? But Steve, are these even the questions that governments are asking themselves? Well, it'll take the US, the EU, the collective West, optimistically at least eight to 10 years to build out their own independent supply chains to de-risk from China in, in all of these industries and kind of trying to hold back the future until a point at which its own industries are in place to deliver and, and benefit from, from the process. So really that is running counter to the, to the goal of energy transition ASAP. Those two two objectives, they're in tension. They, they haven't been reconciled effectively yet. And probably they can't be, you know, referring back to those two questions. So incorporating lead Chinese companies and letting them benefit from the industry growth in the collective West until the point that they can be replaced arrives. That's probably what old school Chinese policy would prescribe in this kind of situation. But at the moment in the West, the, the politics is just not there. It, it kind of lacks the subtlety of thinking and definitely of messaging, I'd say. So, you know, blocking world leading Chinese companies out, but sometimes not even doing it explicitly or clearly in, in the regulation, in the letter of the regulation. It's also part of what is messing with the demand picture at the, at the one point. For example, at the one point in the supply chains where China's companies aren't currently so dominant, and, and that would be the upstream, the mining side, the, the actual control of the resources in the ground. So, so on the mining, if we make a, a reasonable assumption that, let's take one example, lithium batteries will be the key chemistries for the next decade, at least in, in the energy trans transition, and that lithium-based chemistries will gradually supplant the nickel-based equivalent. We can also assume that the case, the long-term case for lithium is, is strong, it's robust, even as prices last year were weak. This year, they'll be weak too, probably. And the optimists will say, we face down this current down cycle. And then when enough companies hold production, run down inventory, the next bull run begins. Then you need the next demand wave to kick off with injections of growth from uh, faster EV uptake in, in countries that have made not much progress so far compared with well, China being the obvious one. And all that probably is going to happen. So then you have, on top of that, you have the massive targets for increasing renewables. And in many countries, as as the local grid infrastructure, it's, it's not there. It can't absorb all of that new renewable capacity. So to avoid that waste, to avoid curtailment, you build energy storage systems. 
basically massive batteries next to your wind or your solar plant. And there you've got another big driver for critical mineral demand. That will be what pulls these upstream calculations, valuations of your minerals into more investor-friendly territory in, in the West. And then if you assume it will happen, the decision becomes where do you mine? Hard decisions, you know, chasing subsidies, anticipating geopolitics trends, dealing with national regulations, navigating the fluctuation in your cost curves, which you, know, you, you don't have control of in many cases. So there aren't really easy, easy decisions if, you know, if your end goal is building up your own China-free supply chain, I guess we call it. So look, look even at the tier one mining jurisdictions, like look at the backstory to the, to the M&A frenzy in Western Australian lithium in the last last 12 months, the, the Aussie iron ore billionaires pivoting into lithium and making the, the Western Australia industry just so much more complicated. I'd expect Western Australia still to play a massive role, along with uh, Canada, especially Quebec, um, Brazil to emerge in Latin America, while you know the likes of Chile, especially Mexico, too risky domestically, geopolitically, Argentina maybe, could go either way. Bits of mining success in Europe and Africa, but potentially interesting stuff also in Morocco, maybe even Saudi, where you know the financing is going to be there and possibly some very generous regulation too. So going back to the question, yeah, absolutely, you can build out an alternative supply chain. Probably it's being done the hard way. Probably it's at the expense of a faster energy transition. And probably it's being done in a way that it's going to create a lot of regulatory issues that are going to fall out of that geopolitical target. Steve, let's focus now specifically on regulation. You just mentioned it there and, and the politicisation of regulation. There are two major themes in terms of what we're seeing. Um, on the one hand, industrial policy and subsidies galore. And on the other, a trend towards protectionism, nationalism, export controls and so on, which is a response to the geopolitical environment that countries are operating in. So what sorts of questions are we being asked by clients and what are the political and regulatory perils that companies are encountering linked to critical minerals? I'm interested in unpacking as well what the differences are between the sorts of issues that are relevant to critical minerals versus those that are the kinds of regulatory and political perils which have always been um, challenges for mining companies. Yeah. Well, I guess we start with, by the upside, we start with the subsidies and investing where you're going to get grants for mining or processing facilities in the US, especially. I think Japan and Korea are going to follow, obviously, EU as well, probably others. That's a pretty obvious call if you're, if you're a business. It's much harder at the moment if you're looking for something a little bit more precise, narrowly defined, like accessing the EV subsidies in the in the Inflation Reduction Act in the USA. Compliance there hinges on percentages of battery components and raw materials and where they're sourced from IRA compliant markets. And then those percentages increase annually through through, through this decade. So I, I guess the, the big peril at the moment for, for the industry and various industries in the chain is what happens to the Inflation Reduction Act to the IRA if Donald Trump is elected this year and is back in office next year. So that's definitely the top question now that we get asked, especially for the battery companies in Japan and Korea. And um, yeah, across the supply chain, I imagine it's the same for our colleagues. It's obviously very hard to answer. You'd have to think Trump, he's not going to be able to help himself and, and leave the IRA alone as as it is, because it's it's such a Joe Biden, President Biden hallmark policy. And 
can imagine Trump firing out executive orders pretty soon after retaking office. So what, what could he do? What about much tougher rules on the foreign entity of concern provisions that, that came out in December? Don't really clarify the level of Chinese participation in the supply chains or the ownership of IRA subsidy applicant companies that is permissible. Tougher rules could come on on what Team Trump might call mineral laundering backdoors into the US. So that would be tougher, tougher restrictions for companies who are building, say, mineral processing facilities or battery manufacturing plants in, in countries where the US has a free trade agreement, like Mexico, Chile, or companies who are partnering with Korean battery or chemical companies because because of the US South Korea free trade agreement. And when they do that with Chinese involvement, supply deals, equity, JVs, will they be able to qualify for the IRA incentives or even access the US market at all? It's quite possible that you could see changes to this effect that, I mean, what they really do is they completely gut the principles of, of an FTA as we know them. But it's not beyond imagining, really, if we think back to Trump 1.0. I could put out another wild guess. So on the licensing loophole that currently industry believes is there that seems to facilitate partnerships between Western automakers, for example, and the, the big Chinese battery manufacturers. I wonder, could we be heading for much more demanding, you might even say Chinese-style technology transfer requirements on those Chinese companies being you know, a condition for those licenses being issued? They could be attached to, to those kind of licenses and then depending on how they are articulated and implemented, I mean, it could, either, it could kill the deal. It could trigger our IP lawsuits going in the opposite direction to what we're used to. Or optimistically, it could maybe lead to some space that is mutually beneficial. I, I guess you'd say the latter would be much less likely. Um, but you do hear a lot in a lot of people in the industry or commentators saying we've got to we've got to be heading towards a light bulb moment in the US China relationship. I don't think it's based on much more than that. That's probably something that would make sense rather than you know reality. I'd say the other geopolitics influenced regulation question that's always going to come up in this in this topic is whether China will further restrict or control the exports of critical minerals that it produces and processes at the moment. So, I mean, for me, surely the answer is yes, especially if Chinese companies and products are just being explicitly blocked or disadvantaged in in what they see as their future growth markets. China market's really tough for them, even though, you know, they've been around it for a long time. And really China, it's been quite mild so far with with the licensing requirements on on exports. Um, I, th- I think the latest one, last year on several forms of graphite, which which do have integral roles in the batteries. The West is backing for this transition. That was a bit of an escalation, even if it if it was an implied threat, an escalation in the implied threat rather than the implementation, at least not yet. But re- re- really, China's just got so many levers and, the, and they're all good ones. So after, after graphite, think magnesium, tungsten, rare earths, maybe more subtle action to control export of mineral processing technologies and then then you know they've got the top trump cards of processed lithium nickel cobalt and so on really the the most effective measure for china it's just to keep on doing what it's doing it's to keep on overproducing minerals regardless of the commercials for those producers and then watch the ripple effect go through global markets sometimes you know china will have to respond anyone would feel they have to respond to regulations coming from the other side so if those responses come, maybe we call them, I don't want to call them retaliations, but maybe if those responses come not as particularly planned moves and you think about what could trigger them, 
look at a ban or an effective blocking of Chinese EVs into the EU, probably the next one. Maybe the US raising tariffs on vehicles imported from China to you know, 40, 50%, some kind of red line thing like that, which you'd hope wouldn't happen because obviously it's better for consumers to have access to affordable, high quality EVs, but also for the, for the critical mineral industry as a whole, because hitting that next wave of mass EV adoption is what that industry really needs and the investors in it above all need. And the sooner the better. I mean, granted, unless you're a Western automaker, perhaps. Uh, though it's hard for the it's hard to see the IRA or any other regular regulatory measure offering offering them anything more than temporary shelter. So here's the last point. Probably beneath these, you know, kind of existential regulatory risks are the like you said, like the more tangible ones, the ones we've seen for years in in the mining industries, kind of the more likely ones as well. So where every country Every country with some minerals thinks they need a downstream refining industry, so they start blocking their ore exports. Or because the industry has become this kind of famous strategic thing, they think better insert some SOEs or some state equity demands into these projects and these contracts. All of it will boil down essentially to contracts, security, contract stability. It's just not going to be very strong almost anywhere through the next stage of the energy transition. And you see political leaders, maybe they're going to start looking at Indonesia, geared up now to provide maybe 65, 70% of global nickel by 2030. And then those leaders see the various export policies that Indonesia introduced over a decade ago as a massive success. I, I remember the years of, years of legal issues, arbitration, brinksmanship, when those policies first came out. And I can't see now when we're, we're all cognizant of those minerals and their, their critical role. I can't see any other countries being able to repeat the Indonesia playbook today, or at least to emerge from this initial business dogfight to attain what Indonesia has done with nickel. Almost none of the Indonesian nickel will be IRA compliant, um, by the way, but that isn't going to be enough to help it the non-Indonesian mining industry, nickel mining industry, which is what is probably the one that's hurting most at the moment because of the quantities getting to market from Indonesia. Carbon intensive nickel, it may be, but the operational costs elsewhere next to those in Indonesia, just rendering many of those countries' industries uncompetitive. And we're seeing projects getting stopped, jobs getting lost, valuations falling fast. Australia is really hurting, but others will too. And going back to regulation and the way out of this here, it is demand again. But for nickel particularly, it's not just nickel, but particularly for nickel, we feel it acutely now. There needs to be some kind of regulation to induce a price bifurcation, some price recognition for minerals produced with stronger environmental standards. So IRA non-compliance, it's a bit of a drop in the ocean. You've got the, the carbon border adjustment mechanism the C-ban in the EU, that could be more significant once it's phased in and if it's implemented. But wider pricing differentiation is what the producers need and no doubt what they're lobbying for in Australia, where it will come in Canada and others as well. Nickel's long longevity in battery chemistries, it might take us beyond that discussion for nickel, but it's, it's pricing, probably something coming. One uh, and one of the decisions that's going to be needed when these net zero fundamentals, they have to be decisively addressed. You can't push it back any further. Awareness of political, country and economic risks underpin your organization's ability to protect value and mitigate shocks. Whether you need consulting on a particular project or longer term strategic analytical and forecasting resources, 
we can respond to your requirements face-to-face or through our online platform-based solutions. For more information, follow the link in the podcast notes. Steve, in what experience do companies that you speak to understand fully both their reliance on critical minerals and the complexity and challenge that they might face in terms of understanding their ESG exposure, uh, in terms of how they are sourcing critical minerals and their exposure to geopolitical risk and to supply chain shocks as a consequence of their reliance on critical minerals? Oh, I think they have a very good understanding of it. You know, there, there's no question that in the at least in the West, that they certainly know the Chinese companies. They certainly know they know they're under the microscope. I guess you 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 go jurisdiction by jurisdiction, and I, I would I would say that some of those jurisdictions, the conditions on the ground for the Western miners, they probably make them uninvestable if you're going to stick to ESG requirements, as you must do. And what about the upstream, Steve? So not your big tech companies, but I'm just wondering if there are manufacturers of cars and other products which are dependent on critical minerals and rare earths that don't really fully understand how they are exposed to critical minerals risks indirectly? Yeah, the end users, the manufacturers, they, they I think they understand it to an extent. In a lot of cases, I don't think they put enough resources behind managing their supply chains, verifying their supply chains. Very, very difficult task, of course, but it's probably going to be regulatory uh, therapy that kind of compels them into doing that. I think a lot of governments are experimenting with that kind of supply chain um, sustainability-based regulation. It's going to have to be regulatory-led, I would imagine, because it's going to cost. And then there's going to have to be some kind of offset built into the regulations to make sure that companies follow them. And I think most companies want to do it, but it's very difficult if you know it's going to render you uncompetitive. So it's going to have to be a bit of carrot and stick on that on that front. I think companies companies get it. Certainly the ones we talk to, they get it. They just realize that it's often imp- it's often impossible to to follow the regulations as they as they currently stand. So what should they be doing, Steve? I mean definitely you, you have to have really strong supply chain supply chain management processes in place. It's it's easiest if you have a degree of vertical integration built into your built into your business. And that's that's probably one of the trends going on now. Obviously you have to you have to I, I would say engaging around this issue of, of price bifurcation, price recognition is probably one of the one of the quickest ways to make this you know, a, a widespread reality rather than just something that the admirable few can can, can afford. So engaging, monitoring, and, and kind of trying to shape the regulations is, is probably what you need to do as well, as well. I know you're helping a lot of organizations do that kind of work, Steve. Um, let's look ahead and uh, anticipate what might come next. There's clearly an enormous amount going on. China's dominant, but you've already mentioned a few countries where there may be interesting opportunities emerging, perhaps Morocco, Saudi Arabia. I wonder if there's any others that you would um, want to highlight for our listeners uh, as places to watch or um, things more broadly to watch over the next few months. Yeah, there's a few things that could have big impacts in critical minerals. Um, Obviously, some major new technological innovations perhaps battery chemistries, maybe new extraction techniques, uh, maybe energy storage, new innovations there. That could be highly impactful. Probably you'll see a few minerals get in maybe in large part engineered out of a few parts of the supply chain or a few of the industries like cobalt, for example, maybe nickel to a lesser extent, as we just mentioned, but not anything that's going to totally rewrite the critical mineral story there. I think one other thing that's going to be really interesting this year and next is 
uh, M&A activity at the top of the industry. Lots of expectation that automakers will want to go vertical, acquire mines or battery makers, so they secure their own sourcing of critical minerals. But I guess we're we're now more likely to see something really big with an oil and gas major or a or a sovereign wealth fund, something like a, the, an acquisition of a, a really big mining company. Um, and I, I guess lithium targets make the most sense in, in this kind of situation. But that's important because you know a top-end recalibration of of any minerals key companies will have implications for all its participating miners and for all of the companies that have got you know purchasing agreements with those miners lower down the chain. I think the last one uh, worth mentioning is, is when are we going to see the first mining or the first harvesting of the minerals from the seabed? Most think that this is a much longer term thing, but I'm not so sure about that. So everyone's looking at the the International Seabed Authority um, and the international waters that it regulates in places quite famously like Clarion Clipperton Zone in the Pacific. And yeah, that is likely to be the longer term future of seabed mining harvesting industry. But but the ISA, it says it's only going to have regulations for exploitation. You can you can get exploration licenses now, but regulations for exploitation by 2025. And that almost inevitably will be followed by a lot of contention over royalties, how the ISA will enforce environmental rules and and then only after that's all ironed out can the permitting processes begin. And remember, those are brand new pro- permitting processes. So it's it's going to take a long time. The ISA, its mandate is to regulate international waters, right? But but what about when a country finds critical minerals on the seabed in its own waters, in its own exclusive economic zone, and then it moves ahead under under its own domestic mining laws? I haven't spoken much about Japan yet, but but I, I think Japan's a bit of a dark horse here. It has done the exploration. It has found the minerals. It's one of the few countries that has domestic companies capable of of processing those minerals to battery grade. It has domestic battery manufacturers. It's got auto companies that have made no progress on EVs worth mentioning. And it's got a pretty big consumer market that probably will never buy foreign EVs. So Japan could be a first mover. I'm sure it would prefer to have an ISA regulatory framework to benchmark its own against or to to follow too loosely but if that takes too long i think japan could could go ahead and it could just weather it could just weather any international criticism for moving first that comes its way and then thanks to that domestic ecosystem i just mentioned just basically go for it and whoever does that then all of these other companies who are holding exploration licenses under the isa waiting for the isa they'll start to get very real very quickly and then things will just gather momentum i think that could that could kind of trigger a bit of a seabed mining gold rush and we've seen Norway, I think, this month um, voting to approve seabed mining. Norway yeah. want to watch as well. Norway's got hasn't got any of those things really that I mentioned about Japan. So if Norway goes ahead, then that backlash could prevent it really getting anywhere. It could get them off the seabed, perhaps. I'm sure it's got the it's got the technology to do that. But then who does it? Who does it? Who buys it? Who buys it in a context where everyone's outraged? I mean, in Japan, that's that's why I kind of see them as a bit of a dark horse because they can just they can do it all themselves until the rest of the world's on board with it. I think, um, yeah, I think whoever does it, it's going to be a bit of a broader disruptor because unlike a mine, it it won't take seven years to get it into production. You kind of just suck it up off the seabed 
and and ship it back to land and, and then and then get it into processing so you know that remotely operated vehicle technology the other marine technologies that you need to do it that they're not, it's it's a small industry at the moment but it's pretty advanced it's ready really so you could see large volumes of copper cobalt nickel manganese getting to the market much quicker than we envisage if we rely just on normal conventional terrestrial mining so it should be good news for 2030 uh, supply demand challenges negative forecasts there but it's going to be a disruptor because it's going to imperil a lot of that terrestrial mining it's going to make it a lot harder for those projects and operators to raise capital if they're not yet in production and especially in jurisdictions which don't have great governance standards in place it's going to invite a backlash from mining focused countries i can imagine even if it is a net. And from an environmentalist, presumably. Yeah, well, and of course the environmental community. So potential game-changing stuff there, Steve, um, but the seabed mining will be politically contentious and of certainly of interest to environmentalists. So we'll be watching that closely. You've raised a lot of issues that organisations should be monitoring very closely if they are in any way directly or indirectly reliant on or involved in critical minerals. Steve, thank you. I've learned so much um, listening to you talking about critical minerals over the past 20 minutes or so. Really appreciate you coming on to the Global Insight. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Claudine. It's, it's been great to talk, talk to you about this. Um, definitely going to be in the news a lot going forward as well. Was any of that information new to you? A lot of it was actually pretty new to me and I hadn't really thought through yet what the implications of Trump coming to power in the US this year might be when it comes to critical minerals. Although we certainly are anticipating that we might see way more of the types of export controls that China has already introduced on some rare earths start to expand and, and, and to acquire more meaning over the course of, of 2024. How are you managing your exposure to risks linked to critical minerals, be they geopolitical, regulatory, operational, environmental or security? There was a lot of information that Steve just shared and if we can help unpack that for you and help you understand more about what it means for your organisation specifically, do get in touch. We can help to identify and monitor the risks that Steve talked through there, but we can also help to make sure that your whole approach to risk management takes into account the really rapidly evolving way that the risks relevant to critical minerals are taking shape. We can also help with stakeholder engagement, how they can be working with all the different stakeholders which have a role to play in their success or otherwise both internally and externally. Thank you for joining me for this edition of The Global Insight. If you liked what you heard on this episode of The Global Insight, make sure to subscribe. And don't forget to check out our other podcasts as well, like Decrypt, featuring our experts from across the world, making sense of the cyber and technology issues impacting business. As always, thanks for listening.